from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is. This is. This is. This is War News Radio. Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Erin, and this is War News Radio. Earlier this year, the Saudi female rights activist Lujain Al-Hathlul was released from prison. While certainly a joyous moment, to many it also reflected the persistent lack of political freedom in Saudi Arabia. Lujain Al-Hathlul was originally arrested for protesting the ban on women driving, and although this ban was lifted in 2018, she still remained in prison. Even after her release, she won't be allowed to travel for the next five years. To understand women's inequality in Saudi Arabia beyond the headlines, however, you need to understand the male guardianship system, which is a term that refers to a variety of formal and informal barriers women in Saudi Arabia face when attempting to make decisions or take action without the presence or consent of a male relative. Human Rights Watch has released a comprehensive report on the male guardianship system, which you can find in our show notes. Today, we have a conversation with the author of that report, Christine Beckerly. We talk about the dynamics of being a Western journalist covering the Middle East, Lujain al-Hathlul's story, and the complexities of the male guardianship system. Without further ado, here's the show. All right. Hi. So do you want to first start maybe just by introducing yourself and giving us some knowledge about your background as a human rights researcher? Sure. So my name is Christine Beckerly. The work that I did on Saudi Arabia and particularly Saudi Arabia and women's rights was when I was working with Human Rights Watch, first as a fellowship, uh, as a fellow after graduating from law school. And then from there carried on work with Human Rights Watch, but focusing more on Yemen. So as the Yemen researcher at Human Rights Watch, um, and now I'm the legal director on issues related to accountability and redress for a Yemeni human rights organization called Malatana for Human Rights. Can you also tell us a little bit why you're interested and how did you get involved in women's rights in Saudi Arabia? Absolutely. I knew broadly that I wanted to do human rights work. I knew broadly that I wanted to keep working on the Middle East um, because that's sort of uh, where I had gained experience, gained lots of friends um, and, and really uh, wanted to carry on work with. So I applied for a fellowship with Human Rights Watch and they have these fellowships for recent graduates. And the way the fellowships work is they actually assign you a project. So I got the fellowship and they assigned me the Saudi Women's Rights Project. And I'll be totally honest, when they first assigned it to me, I was pretty horrified because I had just spent three years in law school thinking about all the ways in which human rights organizations, and particularly U.S.-based human rights organizations, can do work poorly. And I think uh, one of the places where that's happened pretty repeatedly has been on women's rights in the Middle East and particularly on places like Saudi Arabia. So I was panicked and was wondering, how do I do this project and do it in a way that I think is ethical and useful and isn't kind of repeating old problematic tropes? Um, But then I got really lucky, frankly, because there is, and particularly at that time, there was 
this really amazing network of Saudi women's rights activists, some in Saudi, some outside of Saudi. And they were extremely welcoming and extremely wonderful in basically saying, this is what would be useful and this is what would not be useful. Um, and that really guided everything that then happened on that project. Uh, one particular woman that I have to mention is a woman named Hala Dosari. Um, she's done really amazing work on women's rights. And she was the first person I met for this project. And she sat me down and said, yes, you should be concerned about doing all the problematic things that we know about. But at the same time, there's a way in which Human Rights Watch, there's a way in which a report on this is quite useful to things that are already happening in Saudi. Um, and then the project kind of developed from there. Yeah, that's actually something we wanted to talk more about too. We were curious, of course, we do want to get into kind of the meat of the male guardianship system um, and Lujane Al Hafidul's story. But since you bring it up, we're, we're curious more about this, this sort of balancing act between when writing about human rights, kind of interventionist concerns and imperialist concerns versus addressing injustice where injustice is and, and sort of the pitfalls of that and, and how you've navigated that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I went into the project being quite afraid of messy, frankly. And, and it wasn't just that I went in and sort of I was the uh, virtuous, like virtuous and realized that this is the problem. It was also on the phone for my interviews with a variety of Saudi women. And they would say very frankly, like, if you guys just write a word that's saying, oh, you poor victims and need saving from the West and oh, your oppressive government, oppressive Islam, it's completely unhelpful. We don't want you to say it. It's also not true. Um, I think that was a big benefit for me, is that many of the people who I was either interacting with, both as partners in the project or interviewing them about the project, um, were quite clear about what would be helpful. But they were also clear that there were ways in which international solidarity, if done right, could be quite helpful to what they were doing. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason for me, it was just so important, particular aspects of the project that were really quite significantly done in partnership with women's rights activists. Speaking of Lujane, right, Lujane was an extremely prominent already at that point, Saudi rights activist. She's also just I mean, she's brilliant in many, many ways, but one of the ways in which she is brilliant is messaging and communication and knowing how to have a conversation about these issues that will both kind of spark debate in a way that's quite productive. Um, and if what you're trying to do, which is what the Saudi women that we were consulting were saying to us, is spark a conversation in Saudi Arabia about what's happening in Saudi Arabia with male guardianship, the report is helped to lay out what exists, what those are, what the gaps are, but you need something else that's going to be more interesting and arms that are more used to have that conversation. And so for all of those reasons, the report really, at least how I see it, a tool for those Saudi women in campaigns that they had already begun and were continuing. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the male guardianship system and where did it come from? Yeah, so basic description of the male guardianship system is it's a set of policies, procedures, in some cases kind of practices, um, where a woman is treated as a legal minor or a woman has, a, in many cases, that would be the woman's husband. In some cases, it could be her son or brother. 
But the basic idea is that there's all of this that a woman can't do without a male guardian's permission. And I think one of the things that came out really, really clearly in the interviews, um, and I think it still holds true today, the reason we talk about it as a system is that you can't really understand how it impacts a woman's life unless all of the myriad little ways that come together and sort of box a woman's choices in. I, I emphasize that because sometimes people will about sort of small changes that Saudi Arabia has made um, and reforms or any changes that sort of increase um, women's equality, that's great. But in so many ways, different aspects of the system will then undercut those sort of reforms. I actually want to hold on this topic of Saudi Arabia's reforms for a moment. So, as you know, in 2013, Saudi Arabia criminalized domestic abuse. Then in 2015, women gained the right to participate in municipal elections. And then, of course, in 2018, women gained the right to drive. So from the outside, this all looks like significant and very good progress. But how are these reforms received by activists in Saudi Arabia? The kind of basic takeaway there is you have years and years and years of smart, creative activism on the part of Saudi women and in some cases Saudi men on women's right to drive. Then you have Mohammed bin Salman coming to power in Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman saying, really trying to market himself as well as Saudi Arabia to sort of the Western gaze, but in particularly the Western economic gaze and trying to get companies to come into Saudi Arabia and trying to say that, hey, listen, look, I'm a reformer, I'm this young guy. Um, and I think sometimes it's sitting now, we forget how prevalent that narrative was, right? There were think pieces, there were op-eds, there were meetings with various um, prominent folks in the U.S., all really believing this narrative that Mohammed bin Salman was this big reformer and he was going to bring all this big change to Saudi Arabia. But there's a really important piece of that narrative that for a long while people weren't paying attention to, which is that Mohammed bin Salman was trying to sell the narrative that he alone had the ability to sort of gift these liberties to his citizens if he wanted. They would come from him. And so the narrative was not, these women have the right to drive, or, oh, look what civil society has been pushing for for all of this time. We're going to respond to it and give women the right to drive. We, as the state, me as Mohammed bin Salman, have the authority to grant you this, but we're not going to accept that it's because we have to or because you did anything. And I think that was most um, clear when, when they made the announcement that they were going to lift the ban on women's driving. They actually specifically told, before the announcement, they specifically told a number of the women's rights activists, don't, don't talk to the press. Um, we're going to say like, look, this is great. Look what the government's doing, but you guys, you better stay out of it. And I don't think anybody who's following would disagree that that was just a very clear example of the state trying to say, we will grant you what we will grant you, but um, we are not acknowledging the role of civil society. We are not respecting the right of activists to push for certain things. And we're not really buying into this idea that you guys have these rights and therefore we are obligated to provide them to you um, for any particular reason. What was also mentioned in your report for Human Rights Watch was how some of these reforms might look good on paper, but in practice they face a number of limitations. Could you speak a little to that dynamic as well? 
Yeah, so I think there's basically three different things. So the first thing is what I was just talking about, which is the problem that you have when reforms are granted at the discretion of the state rather than as recognized rights. That's sort of number one. The second, um, which frankly has been a problem for quite a long time with Saudi Arabia uh, and other states besides, is that they're quite good at marketing the fact that they've done reforms, but either those reforms are quite limited or they're not enforced. So for example, back in the day, Saudi Arabia did uh, remove requirements that certain, certain employers get male guardianship permission for women to work. And okay, that's great. That's a real reform. But then if they're allowing employers to keep asking women for male guardianship permission to work, then the impact of that reform is quite limited. So you have this kind of reform, but lack of enforcement problem. Um, and then the third thing is where you have reform in one area, but failure to make changes in another related area, which undercuts um, the efficacy of that reform. So that would be what we were talking about earlier, for example, on violence against women. So Saudi Arabia says, okay, we want to confront violence against women. They do do awareness raising campaigns on violence against women, but they fail to change the fundamental response system for claims of violence against women. So a woman reports violence, she gets put in a shelter. She can't get out of the shelter until she either gets male guardianship permission to um, leave the shelter, reconciles with the guardian. And in some cases that, that person is the abuser. And there's sort of a whole range of issues like that within Saudi Arabia, where you do see these reforms but then you either see existing practices or policies that undercut the efficacy of those reforms, um, or you see, frankly, an attempt to market reforms, but then lack of follow through. So I think those two big buckets we've sort of seen over and over again in Saudi Arabia, not to be too cynical about it, but I think part of that comes down to if part of the reason why changes are being made are to get sort of positive press and to get the brownie points of making those reforms, but then there isn't monitoring and follow through to see, well, what has happened since then? Uh, it makes it quite easy to sort of keep doing that. All that said, I do wanna say one thing is that, so the fact that women participated in municipal elections, that did matter, that that was something that mattered. Um, but I, I think we have to be able to live in a world where we say, yes, okay, um, that is positive, that's wonderful, but it's not nearly enough. And to sort of keep the pressure on, frankly, like until you dismantle the entire male guardianship system, you're going to keep getting into these loops of thanks for that small reform, but you're undercutting it yourself in this other area. And with Saudi Arabia's reforms, as you said, really being geared towards getting positive foreign press, as a journalist myself, this sort of makes me turn inward a bit. I'm curious if, after doing this work and speaking with Saudi activists, you've come away with any advice about how American media could report on topics like women's rights in Saudi Arabia with a higher level of nuance. I don't know if this is advice. It's more maybe a moment of reflection. But I think one thing that was pretty important for me throughout this project is that, okay, so I'm a white lady from the suburbs of New York who grew up thinking that I was a strong feminist and whatever. Frankly, 
while I was doing the project, it became very clear to me, and I'm not saying this to be self-denigrating, it's just true. It became very clear to me that many of the women that I were interviewing were better feminists than I was, um, at least in their daily life. Um, because I think the cultural context in which I had grown up in, it was quite easy to say the right things um, and to sort of speak towards, you know, women are equal to men and, and women should have equal opportunities and all these things. But there are there were many, many ways in my own personal life that um, I was not personally pushing back or personally resisting on things that were extremely problematic in terms of gender dynamics. And, and that was what was so enlightening for me in terms of this whole project. Um, both from people like Lujane and Halla, kind of the, the prominent activists, but also just regular women, is that how much of their feminism was really being played out on this extremely personal, extremely local level, um, and how courageous it is to push back against your dad or your brother or your boyfriend or whomever. Um, and so I think that that was a really big takeaway for me, is I didn't go into this project thinking, that, you know, I went into this project very afraid of the idea that uh, uh, international human rights organizations sort of had the answers. I assumed that we did not, but I came out realizing um, that, frankly, I had learned much more about feminism through the process of these interviews, uh, probably than I had at all in my, my adult experience, um, and probably until today. I think going into these conversations um, very much opening and primed to listen and learn and particularly to not be looking for not just right answers but kind of right language or framing i think is hugely important because i think sometimes we get a bit lazy maybe in sort of there's there's kind of signals and ways of speaking and ways of talking that we just assume, okay, this is like, this is right and this is good and we're all on the same page. But I think for me, what was really important out of this project and what's really important in terms of how we can do better, frankly, solidarity generally is sort of, um, again, learning from how Saudi women's rights activists have done their activism for a long time, but also I think how this project played out, which is sort of saying, we don't all need to be operating in the exact same cultural um, or language registrar to be having a very similar goal and in fact to be supporting one another. I spent a lot of time in, in law school in particular self-lacerating about, oh, well, what is my role and, you know, problematic history and there is, and I think we need to be aware of it and I think we need to think about it. But I think if you spend all your time focusing on that rather than time focusing on, hey, people, how can I help you? Then you're losing something. And that was what was so great about all of these Saudi women's rights activists. They were very clear and very direct. Like, listen, there is a role in rights watch in this particular instance. This is how you do it well. Like none of this stuff happens in a vacuum anymore. Change doesn't happen unless there's cross-border solidarity. Um, and all of these ways in which things are interrelated. So for example, one of the levers of influence on Saudi Arabia, on Mohammed bin Salman, are international. Should it necessarily be the focus? No, but is it relevant? Absolutely, yes. Um, and so figuring out to sort of transnational or international solidarity in a way that doesn't replicate all the problems of the past, but is also uh, 
really trying to build out these tactics and strategies underneath their larger umbrella. I think that that, to me, is something that I'm still sort of figuring out, but I do think there's some kernel of truth there. And staying on the subject of international solidarity for a moment, I'm thinking about the, frankly, asymmetric relationship between Western feminists and Middle Eastern feminists. Certainly, there's a lot of overlap between these groups, but considering, for example, ongoing debates around the hijab, it's clear that there are also points of contention. Have these differences ever come up in your work, and how do you move through that? So where I think it's wrong is where the conversation is one way. I, like that's the basic, that's the, the most basic I can put it. And frankly, even in the Saudi guardianship conversation, there was a couple of instances where uh, certain people and even certain institutions kind of brought themselves in where they were saying, this is how we do it, or this is what's super helpful. Oh, oh my God, this terrible thing. Um, let's 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 tell you how you can sort of achieve your empowerment or something there's there was a particular instance where i remember quite quite intensely uh where it was myself um a couple of saudi women's rights activists and some others and we were having a discussion about uh messaging and framing and not the saudi women's rights activists had very 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 strong opinions about what messaging and framing we should be using, particularly as it related to um, women's dress. So like how a woman was dressed. And my reaction, frankly, was like, I don't feel that I can say what the best answer is, but like, hey, we have these two Saudi women's rights activists on the line, they probably can tell us. Um, And they felt very strongly that in this particular situation, it would be better to use a woman who was veiled because it would just take off that conversation. Like we, we're not having that conversation right now. We're having a conversation about male guardianship. And this other person felt very, very strongly that we should not be using a veiled woman because in their view, this was endorsing a variety of, of, of things that they felt were associated with patriarchy and, and repression and all of these things. And I thought that was, I frankly, like I walked away from that conversation extremely frustrated because you have people on the line who are telling you like the purpose of what we're doing right now is to focus on the male guardianship system. We're telling you that if you guys want to be having a conversation about the veil and you want to be conver- having a conversation about dress, like you can have that conversation, but we're telling you that what we all seem to be discussing is that we want to have an advocacy campaign related to the male guardianship system. We don't want to get distracted by the veil. That's not our, our priority right now. So like, let's just put that to the side. Let's, let's not make that the focus. Um, and it really was not at all a back and forth. It really was kind of this, this person believing that they were totally right. And like th- that this was not only just like a matter of style, that this was a matter of principle, and it just felt to me extremely frustrating because it's like, how is this the conversation that we're having at this stage? How, like, how, how is this, how is this, um, how is it that you believe you should be able to tell um, a couple of Saudi women what will resonate within Saudi as relevant to the conversation on male guardianship? But that was a very long-winded way of saying, I think that we all spend a lot of time kind of trying to figure out how to do it, but it feels like the answer is pretty simple. It's like, yes, you will have 
disagreements. Yes, you will have um, differences of opinions, but ultimately the question is, do you have a shared goal? We don't need to be in complete agreement on tactic and strategy if we are in agreement on ultimate goal. And if we can all sort of recognize that different tactics and strategies might help us get to that ultimate goal, we actually benefit sort of working with one another or knowing what one another is doing. And like that necessarily requires a bit more openness in terms of how to get to those goals and frankly a lot more openness um, when it's to sort of being able to hear and listen to what might contribute to ultimately achieving that goal. Yeah, and thank you so much for that story. I think it's a powerful example of the complexities and potential pitfalls around solidarity work. So to end our discussion, uh, we'd like to open up the floor just a bit to you. Is there any dimension of this issue you'd like to touch on that hasn't come up yet in our conversation? One of the things that I've always laughed at and enjoyed is when various media outlets have done the kind of what would this look like if we were covering it in a foreign country. And I think, frankly, like the human rights work, like the human rights world could deal with a little bit of that in terms of thinking about, okay, are we covering things um, in these places with the same complexity and eye towards uh, that people play different roles and that people's stories are, yes, involving um, of hardship, but also involving of a whole range of other things, including sort of actions towards empowerment or a role in change, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's quite important. And that's part of what I, what I very much hope was something that we did right with the male guardianship system, where it's not really supposed to be just a story and it isn't just a story of how Saudi women have been victimized by the Saudi state, but it's really a story about how Saudi women have resisted, have worked together, have worked in opposition to one another um, to try and facilitate changes for themselves and for other women. And Lou Jane's kind of a very prominent and excellent example of all of that in that, yes, she has been terribly treated and yes, she has been um, detained and yes, she has been convicted of things she shouldn't be convicted of and we should condemn all of that. But while we do that, we should also talk about the fact that she's been this incredible woman who's pushed uh, a women's rights movement and made change for other women. And I think that unless you look at both those aspects of her story and probably a few additional ones, you're really missing something about both how change happens um, and what's happening and why uh, and sort of where we go from here. That's our show for this week. You can find Christine Beckerley's report, Boxed In, online at Human Rights Watch. Christine is currently the legal director for Mwatana for Human Rights, an independent Yemen rights organization based in Lebanon. War News Radio is a production of Swarthmore College. Visit us online to listen to archive stories, learn more about the program, or subscribe to our podcast. That's at warnewsradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook to keep up with War News Radio between shows. Look for the links on our site. Our behind-the-scenes crew this week includes Anya Slepian, Max Winnig, Sophie Peterson, and Zainab Emonet. I'm Erin Kay. And I'm Lucas Meyerly. Until next time, thanks for listening.